Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm pastor here at LifePoint, located in Plano, Texas, and we meet here every Sunday at 1030, and we are here for your family. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Isn't it great? Isn't it great to have Pastor George baptizing this morning? Isn't it great to have PG in there? There is no energy like PG energy, and I love that. Thank the Lord for him. And isn't it great to see three more miracles go from death to life and go public with their faith? Amen? Yeah. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. And I just want to say to all of you who pray, to all of you who give, to all of you who serve, thank you because you're helping create a place where life change can happen. So thank you for your investment. Now today, we have a brand new memory verse, and I'm excited to share it. These are the words of the Apostle Paul himself. In fact, this should be his epitaph over his gravestone. And these are his words, and I want us to say them together in just a minute, but first let me say it for you. Paul says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace, Acts 20, 24. Would you, I know some of you are going, that's a longer one. I know, I know, we got time. Let's all stand together, you just keep coming and you'll have it by the end of the series, I really think you will. So let's all say it together out loud, say it with me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news. Acts 20, you sound great, let's pray. God, thank you so much that you continue through your spirit to change lives. We know it's you and you alone who does the changing. We're humbled to be witnesses and to be partners in your ministry. God, today, I know there are people in this room who are wrestling with decisions, and they've come with that wrestling today. I pray that as we look at your word today, that you'll lead us toward your road of obedience and your road of trust so that we can make decisions that honor you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated if you would, please. Well, it's so good to see all of you here today. I want to begin with a phrase that you probably will know intuitively is true, and yet there will be part of you that will push back a little bit if you're like me and like most of us, and here's the phrase. Decisions determine the life that we have. Decisions determine the life that we have. Now, intuitively you know it's true because you're making decisions on jobs, you're making decisions on your career, you're making decisions on the college that you went to, on the person that you married, the person that you're dating, the house that you buy, all these decisions, do I move, do I not move, all these decisions we're constantly making and now you've arrived to today, September the 19th, 2021, here we are because of the decisions that you've made, they are the sum total of exactly where you have arrived. And intuitively, we know that, and yet, let's be real, there's part of us that pushes back a little bit because it would be easy for the parts of our life that we don't particularly care about to blame someone else for the life that we now have, right? It's easier, isn't it, to blame our parents, to blame government, to blame a politician, to blame uh, the culture itself, or someone from our past, a spouse, an ex-spouse, a boss, an ex-boss, a friend, an ex-friend, all these things that we can go, well, yeah, yeah, but it's their fault that I'm where I am. It's their fault that I have the life that I have, right? 
But the truth is, we have to come back to what we intuitively know is true, and that is this. The decisions determine the life that I currently have. My decisions determine that. So here's the thing. I know that some of us in this room right now are wrestling with a decision. I don't know what that decision is, and I know that all of us, if we aren't currently wrestling with a decision, we soon will be. The question is, how do we learn as followers of God to be in tune with God's will or with what God desires? It feels like sometimes this is one of those great mysteries for people who follow God. Because let's be really honest, if I have a decision I'm trying to make, I could go to this side of the auditorium and I could ask all of you the question. You could all get together and you are well-meaning people who follow God and you would say, I think this is what you should do. And I would go, thank you. Then I could come to this side of the room and say, here's the same decision. You would all get together and you would give me opposing advice. Why do you all do that, right? We all do that, don't we? And so we read a different book. We listen to a different sermon. But what we're really wanting to know is what does God say? What is God's will for this decision? Because whether you're new to LifePoint, you don't typically attend LifePoint, and if that's you, we're so glad that you're here with us today. What we all want is to know what God wants and to follow his will. And so today, I want to introduce a concept I learned many years ago that has been really helpful to me. We're going to dive into Acts 16 as we continue through the book of Acts today. But first, I want to introduce a concept that has been really helpful to me. I learned it when I was with North Point and with Andy Stanley. It was a concept that, that has been very transformative for me in understanding God's will. So let me just share it with this tripod. God's will, we sometimes think of as being the top of this tripod where we just say, God, what do you want me to do on this decision? But what's better understood is in Scripture, we see over and over again, there are sort of three legs to God's will. There is the providential, I'll I'll explain what these are, but there's the providential will of God, there's the moral will of God, and then there's the personal will of God. Now, the, the reality is we need to understand these as we pursue God's will because the providential will of God, you say, what in the world is that? The providential will of God is just that part of God that he's gonna do regardless. We have no say-so in this. This is sort of like you're born into the family of origin. You, you have things that happen in your life that God seems to close the door and then he opens the door and you didn't really have anything to do with it. Maybe you get a health report that you don't like or somebody else does. Maybe you have this blessing fall in your lap. Like There are just certain things in life that we all experience that we have nothing to do with it. We can't explain it and this is the key. When the providential will of God happens, our job is not to understand it Our job is just to prayerfully trust God with it. And man, that's a lot easier to preach than it is to do. But this is a big part of God's will. There are some things we will never understand on this side that is in the providential will of God. And then there's the moral will of God. This is just kind of the do's and don'ts in scripture. We understand this part. Our job for the moral will of God is not just to understand or is not to pray about it, it's just to obey it. And sometimes I say, well, I know God said that, but let me pray about if he wants me to do it, right? Like maybe I'm the exception, right? We don't have to understand. We need to pray. Here we understand. We just need to obey, okay? So this is the road of trust, the providential will of God. This is the road of obedience, the moral will of God. And then, here's the part that we like. There's the personal will of God. The personal will of God is, do I buy that house? Do I retire 
Do I take that job? Do I date her? These are the questions that we really wrestle with that are unique to us, and the Bible doesn't specifically address that question. This is the personal will of God. And when we think about the will of God, this is normally what we're thinking about is the personal will of God. And what we forget is there's a a providential and moral will of God. These are the revealed will of God. We can see our circumstances, and I can see what God says about how I should live. This is the revealed will of God. This is the more hidden will of God that we're all actually after. And here's what scripture teaches over and over again, and this is why this concept is so critical. God tends to reveal his personal will of God when we are following his providential and moral will. When we are not trusting him and not obeying him, we tend to not find his personal will. When we are trusting him and obeying him, we tend to find his personal will. And sometimes we're looking for sort of, God, will you show me your personal will so I can decide whether or not I want to follow it, right? You ever done that? I I have. It's sort of like, God, I'm thinking about doing this. Let me know what my options are, and then I'll decide what I want to do. This is trust, obey, discover. The will of God can feel mysterious. Now what I want us to do, though, in Acts chapter 16, we get to see this lived out. We get to have a story that puts flesh on that concept. Because the Apostle Paul is about to go on his second missionary journey, and he's going to wrestle with all three of these things, and I hope that concept will become more clear as we go through it. But to give you a little backstory, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Acts 13 and 14, and we saw Paul and Barnabas go on their first missionary trip. Now, if you weren't here, we want to put a map up real quick so you can see a map of where they went. This is sort of uh, modern-day Turkey. They began in a city of Antioch. You can see it over there where it says Syria. There's Antioch, and they went through Cyprus because that's Barnabas's home area, so they started there. Then they went up to the mainland, and they went in that little circle you can see, and then they came back, and they went back to where they started. Wonderful trip. Took about 18 months. It was the first trip. It was around 44 to 45 A.D., somewhere in there. They came back, and that was trip number one. Well, after a couple of years, they decided they were ready for trip number two. And this is where we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 16. But here's what you got to know. Before they started trip number two, guess what? Paul and Barnabas have a big disagreement And they end up going their separate ways, which is kind of sad to look back and realize it. But somehow, someway, God's will was going to be done regardless. You see, Paul and Barnabas, if you remember on trip number one, they had this guy named John Mark who was with them. And about halfway through, he kind of abandoned them and went back. We don't know the details of why. But when they began trip number two, they're making plans. Barnabas, who remember, he's the encourager, he told Paul, hey, let's take John Mark with us again. And Paul, who's like, Mr. Let's Get Things Done, says, not on your life. This guy abandoned us halfway through trip number one. We don't have time for trip number two. We need to go and share the gospel. And so they disagree and they separate over that issue. So Barnabas and John Mark end up taking their own trip. They end up going to Cyprus, again, Barnabas' home area. And Barnabas is not heard from again for the rest of the New Testament. Paul finds a new teammate in Silas and begins trip number two. And that's what we're going to trace today. And I just want to tell you, trip number two is so historic. It is so meaningful and richly impacts the rest of the New Testament. And I'll talk about why at the end of the message today. 
But I hope you've got your Bibles because I want you to see this story. In fact, let me, let me before we dive in, I just, I just think it might help if you're visual like me. I want you to see map number two. You saw map number one, just a little area there around the Mediterranean Sea. Now look at where he starts in the same place in Antioch. And instead of going to Cyprus, notice Paul goes up to Tarsus. Remember where Paul is from? Tarsus. So he goes to his hometown to start things off. And then you can see he goes way out, all the way up to Macedonia and all the way down to what is modern day Greece and all the way back. This is a massive area compared to the first trip that Paul is about to go on. You don't have to memorize the map yet. We're going to put it up a couple more times during the message, but it kind of gives you a scope of the trip compared to the first trip, all right? Now, if you've got your Bible, I hope you'll follow along because this is an incredible story. If you're wrestling with a decision, you're going to watch Paul wrestle with decisions and how he factors in the will of God in his decision. So look with me in Acts. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible there in the pew. You can pick it up. Find the book of Acts in the table of contents. Look with us in chapter 16, and we're going to look together beginning at verse 4. I will tell you, one of the cool new relationships along the way as Paul and Silas are on this journey is they meet a guy named Timothy who's a young Christian. And Timothy ends up being the one that Paul mentors and later writes him a couple of letters called First and Second Timothy in the New Testament. So we pick up the story in Acts chapter 16 and verse 4. It says, as they traveled, they went from town to town and they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. And I love how Luke gets excited about this next sentence. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is always excited about growth. I noticed that all throughout the book of Acts. And he said, what is the decision that the apostles and elders made in Jerusalem that Paul and Silas are going to tell everybody about? Do you remember what the decision was? We actually looked at it last week in Acts chapter 15. Remember, they, as Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary trip, and they had all these people who were outsiders coming to Jesus. Remember that? Some of the religious people started saying, wait a minute. They aren't Jewish people abiding by all of our laws. They're not Christians yet. And so you remember the Jerusalem council, council in Acts 15, they all gathered together to settle once and for all, how do we treat these outsiders who are becoming Christians? Are they fully Christian if they aren't fully Jewish? Remember that was the wrestling they had. And they decided, James, half-brother of Jesus, had a mic drop moment where he said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And once and for all, Paul said, all right, I'm in then. If that's all we got to do is share Jesus and Jesus alone, I'm out of here. We're going on a trip now. Oh, Barnabas, you're not going. Silas, come with me. And here we go. And that was it. It was that simple for him. And off he goes to declare this decision that no matter who you are, and this is still true today, no matter who you are or what you've done, you could never do anything to get God to love you more. And you could never do anything to cause God to love you less. He already demonstrated his love for you on the cross. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And you are fully and supernaturally loved. And this is the message Paul wanted to go and tell the people. They had never heard this message before. So he's out declaring this message. Now, look with me at the next verse. As they continue this trip, this is where things begin to change because a couple of doors are about to close. Paul knows they've been sent on a missionary trip and he feels like, hey, I'm obeying you, God. I'm trusting you, God. The providential moral will of God. Now I'm just sensing the personal will as you want me to go on this trip. You want me to go north and watch this. Things are about to change. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia. We'll look at the map again in a second. And Galatia, 
Having been kept, watch this, they are kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Well, that doesn't make sense. It seems like the Holy Spirit would want them to preach the word there. But in this case, they're being kept from what they felt like they should be doing. And then watch this next verse. When they came to the border of Mashiach, they tried to enter Bithynia. But, and would you read the rest of this, this with me, the rest of this verse? But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Now that, that's hard to read, isn't it? The Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go to a certain place and deliver the gospel. Now why would that be? Paul in this moment, I believe, comes to his first crossroads where he's trying to discern the will of God. He believes this is where God has sent him to go. He knows of an opportunity up in Bithynia. In fact, we can go ahead and put that second map up. I want you to see what's about to happen on this trip. If you look at the far north center of the map, you'll see where it says Bithynia. See that? And this is where Paul wants to go. You can see his red line was headed that way, and all of a sudden it makes a hard left. Before it makes the hard left, this is where this verse is happening. He's at a crossroads. He is convinced he's supposed to go north, and all of a sudden he says the spirit of Jesus will not. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if people threatened him. I don't know if his people are unwilling to go, if the opportunity closed. But something happens, and it's at this moment Paul can decide if he will be a victim and blame someone from his past, or if he will trust the providential will of God. See, the tempting thing, and if you're like me, this is where I feel that crossroads, that tension in me. The tempting thing is to say, that stinking Barnabas, I bet he leaked the news up here and he's messed this thing up. John Mark, if he wouldn't have held us up, we would have already been to Bithynia and it would have worked out. And he could begin to blame all these plans I had. Somebody in my past messed it up. And I bet Paul felt the temptation to do that. You ever feel the temptation? Like, you know, it's because of somebody in my past that my life is like it is now. Feel that sometimes? We all feel that from time to time. Paul, I believe, felt that. But at some point, he had to re-embrace the providential will of God and say, God, I don't understand it. I thought this is where you were leading me, but you have changed my plans. And I have to trust there is a bigger story you're writing that I don't fully know. And I'm going to move forward despite not understanding right now. Man, this is easier to preach than it is to live, isn't it? It's hard to live this out. And Paul is in that place where he's having to face the facts. He doesn't fully understand this. But he decides to move forward anyway. That is an act of trust. Now watch the next verse. So they pressed on or they passed by Mashiach. And they went down to Troas. And during the night... Paul had a vision. Now remember, he's decided to trust God with a providential will. He's obeying God with a moral will. And when we trust and obey, we tend to discover. He is about to discover because he's trusting and obeying. Watch this. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over into Macedonia and help us. Come over to, uh, and after Paul had seen the vision, we, I would circle the word we, I'll tell you why in a second. We are ready at once. We, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Now, we don't know if the author of Acts, Luke, was with them on this journey, but here is one of the first times that Luke uses the word we as if he may have been on the journey with them. We don't know for sure. It never explicitly says, but it's interesting that there are times where he uses the word we got up and we 
went to Macedonia. Now here's the next word. I would underline this word because this makes me feel so comforted in trying to discern God's will. If you aren't sure, you're gonna love this next word. After he has this vision, this dream, he gets up in the next morning and he goes, I conclude, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And here's what I just wanna say. There's a difference between concluding and being certain. I wish we could always be certain, but sometimes we just have to conclude, don't we? We just have to go with the information that we have and make a wise decision. We, we look for wise input and so forth, but sometimes it's not certain. In this case, God has said, you're going to a different place, and they conclude, we're going to go that way. That's where God wants us to go. Now, some of you are here, and you're wrestling with your decisions, and you're like, you know, I don't know if I want to really hear about Paul. I'm thinking about what I'm wrestling with right now. So I just want to take a break right now, and I want to give you six things that you should know about God's will. When you're trying to discern God's will, let me share these six things with you. Number one, you will often find God's will. You will find God's desires for your life. You will find God's grace for your life on the road of obedience. When I am following the moral will of God, the do's and don'ts that I do know, I am more likely to discover the personal will of God. And here's the question, is there an area of your life that you just already know you aren't following God's moral will? And this is a great opportunity to take a step toward him, which is ultimately what he desires us to do. Number two, six things to know about God's will is often God's will is a lot more like a step-by-step GPS instruction than it is a map of the entire journey. I wish it wasn't that way, but if you notice the apostles over and over again, Jesus would say, I'll give you enough for today, but he wouldn't give them the entire journey. And here Paul is on this trip, and he would know the next city to go to, and that was about it. Paul never got to see this map that we're looking at in advance. He had no idea. He thought the map went up to Bithynia, and all of a sudden it makes a hard left over to eventual Greece. And that's the way our lives work, isn't it? God tends to give us step by step, and I believe He does that because he wants me to trust in him, to rely on him, and depend on him in a daily way instead of I get the whole map and I'm done, I'm got you, God, I'm good from here, now I know where to go. God's will is often more step by step. Number three, it is often more a gradual draw than it is a lightning bolt experience. This is terminology that that I borrow from Oz Guinness' book uh, entitled The Calling or the call. And it's, it's, it's helpful for me to know that I want the lightning bolt experience. I want to pray, and I want God to go, here's what you should do. Or I read the paper the next day, here's what we should do. Does anybody read the paper, go online, and you, like, you find out what you do? But in most cases, in my experience and your experience, it's a gradual draw, isn't it? It's Paul. He, he begins to take off, and by the time he gets to the next city, God reveals the next city. By the time he gets there, he re- it was never a clear cut, this is what's going to happen. It was just a gradual draw. That's the way God's will tends to be. And then number four, my recommendation is to write down God's will in pencil, never in a permanent marker. Because we never get it right every time. And to hold it with an open hand and to say, I conclude versus I'm certain. It's just a dangerous thing to say when we're testing out God's direction for our specific life. I think I feel more comfortable with people who have a little bit of gray and say, like, this is what I'm discerning God wants me to do. And I'm like, man, I'm in there with you. I want to pray for you. I want to support you and cheer you on. Then number five, God's will does not dismiss the valleys. 
The valleys do not mean that you took a wrong turn. Valleys are often part of God's will, God's plan, and even God's desires for us. I don't like this part, but it's true. I see it in every character in Scripture, and often it's not because they did something wrong. We're about to see it in Paul. He isn't necessarily doing anything wrong, and all of a sudden he's going to go through a really difficult time, which will be part of God's greater story. So here's the question. Maybe you're in a difficult season right now. Could it be that God is inviting you into his greater plan even in this valley? And finally, number six. If you mess up plan A, and you will, God will invite you into plan B. And God has a way of accomplishing his will with plan Bs. And man, most of us are living examples of that. And I'm so grateful for that. So you got six things to know about God's will. Paul's experiencing them all. And as we continue looking at the story, I want to summarize some verses for you so we can move fast in the story because Paul and Silas are about to be arrested and thrown into jail. You see, they go to this city called Philippi. And in that city, Paul and Silas meet a lady named Lydia in verses 11 through 14. She becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful story. And then they meet another lady in verse 15, 16, 17, and 18 who is actually demon-possessed. She's a slave, and Paul actually frees her of that demon. You would think that would be good news to the owner of the slave, but the owner of the slave is not happy. You know why? Because the, the woman was demon-possessed. She was actually a very effective fortune teller, which gave the owner money. It was a business. When she was freed from the slave, she could no longer accurately be a fortune teller. So instead of the owner seeing her as being freed, he saw his business being destroyed. And guess what? He's now mad at the person who destroyed his business. He's mad at Paul and Silas. So he goes to all the other people, and he's going to play the race card, and he's also going to play uh, the violation of their uh, culture card against Paul and Silas. There's some things about Paul and Silas he doesn't fully appreciate. And I want you to see it. It begins in verse 19. Verse 19, it says... When her owners, this is the slave, realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. Remember, these are influential business owners. And they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. And in their culture, that would have been some, uh, a group of people they would have looked down upon. And here are the false charges or the charges that he is levying against Paul and Silas. They are throwing our city into an uproar. Remember the Roman culture, organization, um, uh, stability is a very high value. And they're advocating customs unlawful for us Romans. And they're sort of this um, superiority to accept or practice. Now, in this moment, I can't help but think that Paul and Silas are thinking, God, all we did was obey you. And then we helped this lady be freed of a demon, and now you're going to have these people come against us? And once again, he's at a crossroads. Does he blame this person who's falsely accusing them and gets stuck on blaming someone? Or does he back up and go, you know what? Sometimes the providential will of God invites me to trust some things I don't fully understand. This is between me and God. Here, I'm going hey, to pursue justice while I trust God with his providential will. And watch what happens, because a lot of people get upset with this business owner. Look at the next verse. It says, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordained them or ordered them to be stripped and beaten 
with rods. And they had been severely flogged. They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded, commanded to guard them carefully. Where he received these orders, when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, and then he fastened their feet to the stocks. Now, I can't help but think that when the Roman soldiers took the clothing off of Paul so that they could beat him, don't you imagine they saw a body full of scars? Because remember, Paul, in, in, in chapter 14, he was taken out to the city where he was stoned and left for dead. He was so um, beaten and, and, and rocks thrown at him that he was thought to have died. And now when these soldiers, I can't help but think when they take his shirt off and they see, wow, this man has been through it before. This man has taken a lot of hits for the gospel. That their jaw must have dropped as they saw how much he has been beaten, how much he has been attacked. And then they go ahead and flog him and beat him. And now we have scars upon scars. And I am reminded of what it took to get the gospel out of the first century into the second century because of what Paul went through. And sometimes I think, what cost does the gospel have in my life so that I can be getting the gospel into the, second, into the 22nd century? Here Paul is paying a severe price for the gospel. But then I can't help but think that he and Silas are in jail. Can you imagine this? And they begin to look around. They're in their inner cell. There's people who are guarding them. Their, their feet are, are, are tied and chained. And they must look at each other and think, what did we do? Did, did we misunderstand God? He, he told us to go on this mission trip and that we would share his son Jesus. You don't have to follow the rules. You don't have to be like a super Christian. You just have to put your faith in Jesus Christ because God loves us. But does he not love us because we're in a cell for freeing someone from a demon and obeying God all the way to Philippi. What kind of a God who is good and also in control would allow us to be here? Is this the way it ends? And this is the valley. And I know this with, with this many people that there are some of you who are in the valley right now. And you're asking the same question. What kind of a God who is good and in charge would allow me to be here in this valley? And Paul and Silas are in that wrestling of, God, can we trust you here? I had enough faith to trust you, you know, from Antioch. I had enough faith to trust you as we traveled toward Bithynia. And, and then I had enough faith to get me to Philippi. But now I'm in prison in Philippi. Do I have enough faith to trust you here? And maybe some of you are wrestling with that. Do you have enough faith to trust God in this moment, in this season? And if you're wrestling, can I just tell you, that is the most normal thing to do, to be in that place and have that question. But I want to let Paul inspire us today. Because at some point, he and Silas, as, as the night wore on, something changed in their heart. And as they were traveling down the providential will of God that was going to happen regardless, they didn't do anything wrong to put them there, and they couldn't do anything to change them from being there. At some point, they decided to travel this road with trust. Trusting what they couldn't understand. And all of a sudden, the rest of the prisoners... Late in the night, they begin to hear a really mysterious echo throughout the halls of the prison. 
They begin to notice that this wasn't just people talking, but there seemed to be a melodic echo to it all. And they begin to wonder what in the world is going on because Paul and Silas had decided, I am going to trust God here even when it makes no sense. I'm going to say, God, you're good enough and I am going to trust you with what I don't understand. I want you to see it in verse 25. Look what it says. In this moment, it says it was about midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. And Would you just read the rest of that verse with me? And the other prisoners we're listening to them. And this is the ultimate eavesdrop right here. They're like, am I hearing people sing in prison? Like this is way past bedtime, right? This is like midnight. You need to be in your cell by now. You need to be like lights out, it's done. And they're praying and they're singing hymns and people begin to hear, people begin to listen. And I believe there's a great example of trust that's happening. Paul and Silas have been obeying and now they've decided to trust. And when you decide to trust and obey, then you will discover the personal will of God and watch the discovery happen. Because look at the next verse, it's in this moment. It says, suddenly. Suddenly, suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake. They must have lived in California. There it is. And the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors, say these next two words with me, flew open. Yeah, you got to say it with your out loud voice. And everyone's chain, say the next two words with me, came there you go. And the jailer woke up, poor guy, because he's, he's about to find a surprise here. And when he saw the prison doors open, doesn't make sense, he's got the key, he drew his sword because he's distraught and thinks his life is over. And he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now, I love this. This is one of the great lines in Scripture. But Paul shouted, hey, don't. Don't harm yourself. Read these next four words with me. Say them out loud with me. We are all here. Yeah, I don't know if all the prisoners, because the gates had been open or the cell doors had been open, they just started walking down the hall. They could have left, but they decided to go to the inner cell where the singing is coming from, and they're in there having a big worship service. I don't know if that's what's happening, but I can imagine, and Paul goes, hey, no worries, jailer. We're all in here. We didn't leave or go anywhere. We're all right here. And the jailer's got to be, you're all, what? And he realizes he is experiencing something he is never experiencing. There is something bigger than free and prison and bosses and governments and laws. There's something bigger going on here. He realizes he's tapping into and witnessing something supernatural here. He can see it on their faces. He can hear it in their music. He can realize based on where they are versus where they aren't. And he asked the ultimate question. Look at the next verse. It says, the jailer called for lights. I love that. And he rushed in and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I wonder if in this moment, Paul and Silas goes, that's why we're here, right? God, I'm gonna trust you. We're imprisoned, makes no sense. We're gonna trust you anyway. Earthquake, prisoners come. Jailer goes, hey, how can I be saved? If they don't just pause and go, hang on just a second, Jailer. God, what in the world? Thank you, thank you.
thank you for putting us here. There's nowhere I would rather be than in this. This is why we took the trip was to share Jesus with people who don't yet know Jesus. And if you're here, that may be the question you're asking. Well, what can I do to have purpose? What can I do to experience this love? I've tried the other stuff in life, as Leo talked about, and it does not satisfy. I'm looking to be satisfied. I'm looking to be fulfilled. This is what the jailer is ultimately asking, and I want you to see how Paul and Silas answered this profound question. And if they were here today, they would answer it the same way. Look what it says. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. It's the greatest decision you can ever make and it will impact those around you. So watch what happened. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all the household were baptized. I love the miracles that took place right away. Let's just get baptized. That's what we say. We love to see people baptized here. If you want to be baptized, just jump in with us next week. This is a great spiritual significant step and we want to encourage you to take it. And the jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them and he was filled with joy, I guess so, because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. God did a miracle and this morning we saw three more miracles. The same spirit that moved with that jailer moved with three more people and we are seeing this because our God is the same God who moved then who moves now. He has the same power and he has the same activity. It's just that we are often missing out on tapping into his power. He wants to move. He desires to see revival. He desires to see renewal. This is our God at work. And here in a jail of all places, his spirit is working. Not even the jails, not even the fastened uh, chains around the feet could hold his power back. Now watch what happens. The rest of the verse, basically, uh, I'm going to skip for the sake of time. Basically, uh, they get released and they're told, go in peace. And then we see Paul and Silas on their way out. Just kind of a little dinger. They just say, oh, by the way, I know you thought we were Jews and you were Romans. I just thought I'd let you know, we're actually Roman citizens. And all of a sudden, the jailer and the, those in control were already apologizing because they had brought these charges against them and they've seen the supernatural work of God through them. And now they're thinking like eyes big as saucers going, oh, we're really sorry. But please don't tell authorities. Please just go in peace. And when they have an opportunity for revenge, when they have an opportunity for like retribution, I want you to see what Paul and Silas do when they are released from the jail. Look at verse down at verse 40. It says, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house. Remember Lydia? She was the one that came to Christ back in verse 11, 12, and 13. They go to her house. It's a small group that's gathered there where they meet with the brothers and sisters. That's what they would call those who are followers of Jesus. And they encouraged them. And then they left. I want to just keep saying this, and I want to say this until I die because I believe it's all throughout Scripture. You cannot carry the weight of suffering apart from community. You can only carry the weight of suffering in community. And as soon as they were released from prison, the first thing they did was they went back to their community where they were encouraged. Now, I know there are some of you who are here today who are asking the same question these people uh, prisoners were asking and this jailer asked and that is what do I need to do to be saved 
What what does it mean to give my life to Jesus? Is he your Lord? Have you given your life to this Jesus? And and maybe you've heard the gospel before. You know that there's a God who loves you. You know there's his son who was sent to the cross for you. You know that you aren't perfect. You've lived enough life to know that none of us are. But now you are reminded that Jesus, he is the friend of sinners. And he demonstrated his love for you in that while you are a sinner, he died on the cross in advance for you. Your only part is to come. And just like Paul and Silas said from this jail, your job and my job is just to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is that he is the Lord. He's the boss of my life. I surrender my life to him. Yeah, I'll have goals, but at the end of the day, I want to trust him. Above all else, I want to follow him. I want to give my life to him. I want to be like Paul and Silas, and I want to tell others about him. This is what we have been created to do. This is our greatest opportunity in this lifetime. And if you've yet to make that decision, I want to invite you to consider making that decision today to give your life to this wonderful Jesus whose love makes no sense in the world because we've never seen it anywhere else by anyone else. It's a supernatural, unconditional love. And I know it feels too good to be true, but would you join those of us who've discovered it throughout the centuries that this God's love is unmistakable, it's unconditional, and it's indescribable, and give us purpose in this life. So I want to ask you in this moment, would you just close your eyes? Maybe you would even lower your head, but if you would close your eyes and give privacy to everyone here. If you're in that place and would like to give your life to Jesus, to follow him with your life, I want to give you an opportunity right here, right now to do exactly that. So would you pray this prayer after me? Nothing magic in the words, it's a decision between you and your God. Would you pray this prayer after me? God, I admit that I am a sinner in need of a savior. God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me and to rise from the dead. And God, today I commit the rest of my life to you to make you my savior and to make you my Lord. I put you on the throne of my life. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision today, we're going to put a QR code on the screen. I want to invite you to scan that. It's in the pew in front of you. You can just take out your phone, scan that. You can join up for a life group today. You can let us know you want to be baptized today, or you can let us know you decided to follow Jesus today. In any case, we want to celebrate with you. We want to pray with you. Would you just let us know the decision that you are making today? Now, for all of us, the truth is, It's so easy to talk about the providential will of God, but it's hard to see it in hindsight. And in our life, you may have some things that are difficult right now that make zero sense. I know exactly what that feels like. And I wanna show you, though your pain may be different, your valley look different than mine, we all have them. I wanna show you that map one more time. Because what Paul didn't know was when he was headed out wanting to go north to Bithynia, Watch what happens in the providential will of God. As he goes left, you can't, maybe you can see it, maybe you can't. He goes to Troas, Troas. He'd already gone through Galatians. And then he goes up to Philippi. And then he goes to Thessalonica. And then he goes down to Athens. He goes to Corinth. He ends up going over to Ephesus. Any of those names sound familiar to you? You see, God used Paul 
27 books in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of them. Most of them were letters that he wrote back to these people. And in your lap, you have copies of those letters. From the people he met on this second trip, when it made no sense for him to go left, he knew to go north and all of a sudden God shut the door because God's providential will was not only that Paul would reach people to know Jesus, but that Paul would fall in love with these people and he eventually he would write letters to them that God would supernaturally record so that we would have it 2,000 years later. Paul's willingness to obey and trust the providential will of God, we benefit from here today. You see, the same thing is happening for you and I because we have a little story. This is so foundational to understand God's will. But there's a bigger story. God was way before us. He'll be way after us. We have a little tiny story. But God cares about our little tiny story. And when we trust his providential will, not only is our life more meaningful and more impactful for those around us, but generations from now will be impacted as well. Because Paul decided to trust God. Many of us can better trust him as well. I don't know what God's walking you through right now, but I bet there are generations that are cheering you on that will benefit from you trusting him with this providential will of God. I want to close with these three questions. And maybe you're there today. Number one, God's will is found on the road of obedience. Is there an area of your life where you're struggling to trust him? Number two, God's will does not dismiss the valleys. Valleys don't mean a wrong turn. Is there an area of your life where you're struggling and it might just be part of his will? And then number three, if you mess up plan A, here's the really good news. God has a way of introducing plan B. Is there an area where God is inviting you to follow him again? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for who you are, all that you've done. Lord, as we follow the life of Paul and as we'll continue his second journey next week in chapter 17 with some more twists and turns, God, we are reminded that our life includes twists and turns and we want to make decisions that honor you. God, help us to be trusting you with what we don't understand, obeying what we do understand, and then trusting that you'll reveal the rest. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one more time, let's stand. I almost forgot to go over our memory verse, but we can't afford to not go over it. So just before we sing, would you stand with me and let's go over Acts chapter 20, verse 24. These again are the words of Paul and they'll show up on the screen. Would you say it with me? However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Amen. Let's sing. I hope today's message was an encouragement to you. And if you'd like a little more information about our church, just visit us on our website at lifepointplano.org.